Hey guys, uh, so let's get to learning a little bit more about Jackson. Hey guys, so where we last left off with Andrew Jackson, uh, you know, of course he made a name for himself in the military, right? Battle of New Orleans, all that stuff, kind of gained more and more promise. And he finally runs for president in 1824. In that first time, anybody remember, does he win or lose? 1824, no, it's been a while. It's been, you know, five days, whatever it is. Anybody recall? He faced off against John Quincy Adams. There was a couple other guys in it, too. Uh, did he win? So that was the one that was weird, where he won the popular vote. He also got the most electoral votes, but he didn't get the majority he needed. So, uh, remember, it went to the House of Representatives, and they ended up giving it to John Quincy Adams. So this is where I told you about, like, the corrupt bargain and all that stuff, right, where John Quincy Adams was awarded the White House, and in return, he gave Henry Clay a job as Secretary of State. And... Uh, you know, that was the uh, kind of trade-off. But again, that's going to pave the way right in 1828 for Jackson getting tons of popularity. I think I remember I told you what the election was about. It was a little bit ugly because there was a lot of mudslinging. Does anybody remember what they were talking about? It was kind of gross. They were attacking each other's, not even them, right? It was their partners, their wives. Y'all recall that a little bit? And again, it had to do kind of with attacking their wives' reputations and their family backgrounds. It got a little bit ugly, but ultimately Jackson is able to carry the election and retain or get the White House. Sorry. So that's, again, John Quincy Adams is just one term, and then Jackson comes in 1828, or right after 1828. Um, are you all okay with the spoils system? Did you all understand that, or should I repeat it one more time? What does this have to do? What does the president kind of give away once they achieve the office? Jobs. Very good. And so a lot of people charge it as being kind of corrupt, right? I don't know if you all ever heard of a nepotism. You know, like if you ever get a job, you know, in the future, whatever, you might have to fill out a form that, you know, they're trying to make sure just that, like, you're not related to someone and getting the job because of that sort of thing. So it's kind of something like that where people start to inspect this and see this. It's kind of maybe not the best practice, right, where presidents are kind of just rewarding jobs for loyalty and things like that. So Jackson is, is the first one that becomes kind of a big deal because he does it in like numbers we've never really seen before and he also sort of defends it publicly by saying hey i won the election i was the people's choice i should be able to choose who works for the government who has say things like that all right i think we're good with king andrew's depiction here all right guys so amongst the many controversies of uh, andrew jackson's kind of career uh, this one is, is kind of minor but it has some big implications why we talk about it it's also a little bit of a glimpse into like some weird things where you might not think this was an issue back then, but but it was something that even happens today, right? And kind of affects people and stuff. Uh, so this is called the Peggy Eden Affair. Sometimes in uh, certain books and all that, it can also be called the Petticoat Affair. But this revolves around uh, the cabinet surrounding Andrew Jackson in his first term in office. And I mean, when we say cabinet, we're talking about his advisors, right? Like the vice president, the secretary of war, secretary of the treasury, on and on and on. And so basically what happened is... Um, Jackson had appointed a gentleman named John Eaton to be his Secretary of War, sort of like Secretary of Defense. And John Eaton was single at the time he took the office, uh, but he uh, began dating and fell in love and was about to marry, or did marry, a young lady by the name of Peggy O'Neill. Right, Peggy O'Neill was her name. And of course, when she gets married to John, her name changes to Peggy Eaton. And what happens, though, is it has to do with a little bit about uh, Peggy's background. Uh, her father owned a business in D.C., kind of like a sort of restaurant slash bar. And Peggy had a, a little bit of a, what do we say, like a clouded reputation. 
But again, that doesn't even, you know, doesn't even so much matter. But that's the beginning of uh, what's going to be a big problem for Matt, for Andrew Jackson. In that when John Eden gets married to Peggy, um, the other like uh, cabinet members' wives and the cabinet members themselves start really mistreating John and really mistreating Peggy. To the point where like they kind of get like, how do we say, like almost like harassed and stuff by these other cabinet members. Like they don't, they're not allowed to sit with them at fundraisers and functions Straight up, like, the other wives don't even talk to Peggy because of, like, the sort of reputation and her background. So it gets really, really nasty. And you might think, like, man, that's kind of crazy, right, for back then. Well, I mean, if anything, right, people are much more conservative back then. And, uh, you know, it gets to the point where Andrew Jackson, the president himself, kind of has to get involved. And he kind of, like, tells everybody that, you know, they need to, like, just kind of carry on and treat this woman with respect. Some people believe that he did that because of what had happened with his wife, Right. Does anybody remember why people criticized Jackson's wife? I think I explained last time. I know it's been a while. But remember, what was her issue? She had married Jackson, but she had never... She had never been divorced formally yet from her first husband. So some people believe that he saw in Peggy kind of a little bit of his wife's, you know, sort of stuff and how she got attacked. So, you know, he kind of gets after his cabinet and it ends up causing this whole mess where part of his cabinet, including his vice president end up resigning their positions. So... Did, did he, like, fire all of them? Yeah, they, well, either sign or they resign to kind of, like, save, uh, you know, face or to uh, not, like, uh, get ruined, I guess. But, yeah. So, again, this is a big deal, and this is why we talk about it, because it kind of changes the dynamics of his government by, you know, these people either being fired or resigning. And it also cements Martin Van Buren as kind of his, his next successor. It'll be, you know, he'll be kind of the next in line to be president, uh, and he'll have Jackson support. So kind of crazy, right, how these rumors, this little kind of scandal ends up really affecting politics for those few years and stuff. Any questions? Everybody okay? And it's called the Peggy Eden Affair. Kind of interesting. I guess I just thought this was uh, kind of interesting, right, in the uh, sort of the dynamics of the day. You, can, you see you know, all that ugly negativity, right, and kind of sexism in the lead up to the, or the election of 1828. And that kind of continue even in the uh, cabinet or the short time that Jackson has taken over. So pretty intense and pretty unfortunate, especially for Peggy Eaton. All right, guys, we need to spend a little bit of time on Indian removal and something else that'll be... And the funny thing is, as we look back and as we sort of evaluate presidents, this is something that's going to be a really ugly kind of black mark, right, on um, Andrew Jackson's sort of, you know, uh, legacy as a president. But what you have to keep in mind, and it's always really difficult for people to do, right, is, you know, what he does here with Indian removal is extremely popular at the time, especially for someone like Jackson, who again, was born in South Carolina, right, but calls Tennessee home. Um, you know, the sad truth is back then, I mean, the majority of Americans wanted Indian, wanted Native Americans removed and moved west to the Mississippi. That's kind of the way it was. So, you know, while we debate this a lot today, and there definitely seemed like a better way to probably handle this, you know, at the time, there was really no question, and it actually helped make him more popular, if anything. So uh, kind of fascinating. All right, as far as Jackson kind of perceived role in all that, he took on a paternal role in regards to relations with natives. Uh, Y'all know what paternal means? What does it mean? If I say, you know, you have great paternal instincts, what am I trying to say? You're going to make a good, what? Parent? Yeah, like taking care of someone. And that's kind of the role that Jackson kind of tried to absorb, especially portray in regards to native tribes. If you go back and you look at primary sources of uh, when he's corresponding, like writing letters or receiving letters from native tribes, 
they literally called him like our great father or our father Jackson. So it's kind of this weird sort of role where, you know, he almost kind of like promised to take care of them, but, you know, they must kind of listen to him and follow uh, you know, him and sort of things like that. So really interesting. Also on the flip side for Jackson, I always like to tell this story because it helps show kind of the two sides of a person, right? A lot of people don't know this, but he actually adopted a young Creek uh, Native American boy to be like his son. He raised him as his son. Uh, unfortunately, the boy didn't live too long. I want to see he didn't make it out of his teens. But, uh, you know, it shows that di- that sort of duality, right? Of You can have someone that, you know, seemed to have a very anti-Native American stance and policies. And yet, you know, he accepted one into his own home and kind of raised him as a son. So kind of interesting. Um, all right. So uh, some other things involving uh, the Indian removal stuff, you know, basically what you have going on in the southeast, especially with the Cherokee, but the Seminoles, Creeks, all those are the states in particular, the state of Georgia, Florida, Alabama, are really, really trying to open up that native land to settlement and to farming, right? Especially things like cotton and so forth. So you have a lot of pressure from the states to, to do this. Now, part of the issue for Jackson is his support and his base was the south and the west. So those same, same sorts of states of Georgia, Alabama, uh, Florida eventually right, will become a state. Um, you know, those are kind of Jackson's like people. So there's been some people who comment on that Jackson, you know, you, could you really alienate those states, right? That's where your like staunchest supporters are from and supporting you. And uh, of course he won't, right? He'll end up siding with those states in the different court cases and the different kind of uh, things leading up to Indian removal and stuff. Uh, again, if you want to get the dates down for this, so the initial Indian Removal Act is 1830. So that is really soon, right after he took power in 1829. And then what culminates, there's kind of a couple of key uh, dates in that kind of span of time. Uh, in 1832 is a very famous Supreme Court case called Worcester versus Georgia, where basically the Cherokee sue Georgia for taking their land. And, you know, the, the surprising thing and what's amazing about this is the Supreme Court agreed with the Cherokee natives that they did everything they're supposed to. They do have claim to the land. But this is where I think Jackson had the famous quote saying, well, you know, the Supreme Court has decided, but let's see them enforce it now. And so, you know, Jackson basically ignores the ruling in that Supreme Court case and then basically setting up, right, what will be eventually the Trail of Tears in 1838, right, where you have tens of thousands of mostly Cherokee, but some others uh, relocated uh, west of the Mississippi. Anybody know where the destination was for these large groups? Where were they going to put them? What part of the west? It's our, it's a state just to our north. Anybody know? What territory? They call people from here Okies. Anybody know? Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma. So initially kind of that's like sort of the dumping ground, you know, for some of these groups. And then those groups will get smaller and smaller plots of land, right? Ultimately resulting in uh, reservations and stuff. Uh, just some last things on the Indian removal uh, sort of situation. Getting about a one-fourth casualty rate, again, dying from exposure, disease. So this is what adds to it, right? It's not only that they're forced in mass, right, to kind of move and relocate, right, from their ancestral homes, but that the casual casualty rate is so high, is at that 25%. So again, um, again, to us, right, kind of a travesty, and it is one of the ultimate sad things in the United States history. But at the time, this was the popular move, and this was what a lot, the way a lot of Americans felt as far as what to do with uh, you know, some of these native groups and things. So kind of crazy and, and definitely you know, pretty sad. All right, guys, here's a map kind of showing the uh, sort of trail, right, to reach uh, the Cherokee territory. You know, one thing that you can see, I always tell students in a lot of this is, you know, initially they block off certain land for different tribes. 
And then they're only going to put, you know, more and more tribes in there as well. Um, but, you know, you have to understand the perspective of the Cherokee here, right? Like they've been so used to living in this kind of piney woods area, right? Pretty great land for growing. It is a little bit uh, mountainous and stuff like that, right? Because of parts of the Appalachian Mountains. And now they're going to Oklahoma, where it's very, very different, right? A lot drier. Um, you know, the land's different. It's different to work. It's different to grow things and all that. So this is very, very tough, you know, overall adjustment. On top of that, you know, the, the government is, is kind of ugly in the way it handles even some of their cultural aspects. Like, you ever heard of something called ghost dances or something like that? You might have heard of them as a different term. But, you know, like, like things that are part of sort of early Native American religion or culture, right? Uh, rain dances later on would also be popular. You know, some of these things are going to be made illegal for some of these people. So, you know, it's, it's seen as almost not only are they moving us from our home, but they're trying to kind of stamp out our culture, right? Who we are, who our identity is. So, you know, kind of a crazy set of events. Everybody okay? Any questions, concerns? You're good? Okay. All right, guys, so the next event we'll uh, take a look at for a few minutes is uh, the nullification crisis. Might sound a little bit familiar. Anybody sound familiar from eighth grade a little bit, maybe? Not so much. Anybody know what it means to nullify something? Like if I nullify your homework, what does that mean? You're assigning it? Are you like doing the opposite of that? Yeah, it's well, it's, I guess it would be the opposite of assigning. It'd be like canceling, right? Avoiding it, basically. So this yeah. basically all centers on a tax. So I'll do my best to explain it. And again, if you need me to repeat anything, no problem. Or, uh, uh, you know, uh, elaborate on another part, no problem. But what this has to do with basically is uh, there was an 1828 tariff that was passed, right? And remember, a tariff is a tax on what type of goods? Anybody recall? Imported goods. Very good. Absolutely. Thank you. And this tariff is going to go by the nickname, the tariff of abominations, right? Abomination like the, like, you know, something that shouldn't exist. And it'll be given that nickname by Southerners in particular. And this is something we see kind of in the lead up to the American Civil War is the Southerners a lot of them, especially the upper class, get a lot of their finished goods, whether it be furniture, whatever, you know, whatever uh, finished goods, they get them from Europe, in particular from England. So when this tariff is passed, you know, the goal of the tariff is to raise money, right, for the government. A lot of Southerners did not really agree with it, and they thought they should not have to follow it. Well, this all reaches kind of a culminating sort of event in the early 1830s, when former Vice President John Calhoun, who was one of those who was involved in that Peggy Eden affair, is now a politician in his home state of South Carolina. And South Carolina is the one being kind of like the rebellious sort of child here. South Carolina basically has sort of like a convention, right? A meeting amongst their political leaders. And they say, we are not going to follow this tariff of 1828. We refuse. You know, in their view, what it was doing is it's, it's going to make goods more expensive for us to buy. Why would we do this? Why was, is it in our interest to do this, right? Of course, the federal government would say, and Jackson would say, you don't have a choice, right? You're part of the United States of America. You're not just the country of South Carolina that can decide what can happen or what can't happen. So it ends up being kind of a real test of wills from South Carolina and Jackson and the federal government. There's also a lot of beef between these two because they used to be close friends, and then because of Peggy Eaton situation, and because of this, they really can't stand each other at this point. So things get really, really close to, uh, I mean, it could even be violence. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, eventually, kind of cooler heads prevail, but there's kind of two parts to this. 
So Jackson is basically saying, you better do this, South Carolina, or else you're going to be in big trouble. And then eventually even goes through Congress to secure something called the force bill, which states that, hey, if South Carolina doesn't enforce this tariff, we will, I will take the military in there and force them to comply. So this is kind of a big step. Now, once this happens, right, the people in South Carolina are aware that, oh, Jackson's really threatening to use, you know, the army basically, right, to enforce this tax, to enforce this tariff. What basically happens is Jackson and uh, some of the people from South Carolina are able to urge Henry Clay to pass a new tariff in 1832. And what this does is kind of a compromise. It lowers the original tariff from 1828 and it allows South Carolina to kind of accept it. Like, you know, they will take the tariff, but it had, it, was, it had to be lower than the one passed in 1828. So that's eventually how they kind of break the stalemate. But again, it's a good little glimpse of, I mean, this is basically what causes the Civil War later on, right? Of, you know, again, if a state refuses to comply with federal law, uh, what can happen, right? Does the government have the ability or the right to take the military in there? No one really knew that. And this is kind of the first little hiccup in this relationship, right? Everybody okay? So again, between South Carolina right, and the federal government under Jackson. Jackson also creates a lot of enemies here because South Carolina, a state that was really loyal to him, and so people are trying, starting to question here. He also was seen as a president who backed up like states' rights and things like that. So when he does this and threatens to use the army, it really kind of sets a lot of people off and turns them off to his politics, saying, well, now he's sort of this you know, uh, you know, president that's using federal power like we've never seen before. Right? Is he really standing up for the states, for the western and southern states? It doesn't look that way. So this is something that's going to divide some of those people and how they see Jackson in particular. All right, guys, well, let me just want one more comment before we move on. And just to give you an idea of why this is like that or something is imagine, you know, uh, I wanted to give you a scenario. Let's say next year they announce uh, and this doesn't exist. I'm just using it as a hypothetical, right, like a pretend scenario. But imagine uh, they did something where they increased the tariff, uh, you know, whatever, on Mexico, right, uh, by 25 percent. Right. Why would that be a big problem for us right here in the valley, for instance? Anybody have an answer to that? Again, they put a slap a tariff, a 25% tariff on Mexican goods. What's the problem for us here in the, in the valley? Because we also depend on that. Yeah, it's part of our livelihood, right? Think of something like the mall and all that, even in these terrible times, right, with the pandemic and all that. I mean, Mexican commerce and all that stuff is really key to our region. So it's kind of the same thing for the South. And I'm not necessarily defending the South, but just trying to get you to understand their perspective a little bit, right? Uh, why would, you know, in their view, right, why should they follow this federal law if it kind of ends up hurting them? Uh, so that was kind of the big question. And this you know, whole situation, it's called a nullification crisis. And again, it's called that because South Carolina was trying to nullify, right, that federal tariff of 1828. All right, guys, the drama's not over and not done, right, for Andrew Jackson, and it kind of never ends for him. I don't know where he gets the energy from to kind of deal with all this. You know, most presidents have like one of these issues when in their terms in office, and Jackson has a bunch of them. There's no shortage of drama. I guess it shows maybe his strong personality and all that. All right, guys, so the bank and the election of 1832. So basically what happens here in the early 1830s is um, the Bank of the United States became, became kind of a scapegoat for the government or for, from, for people, sorry, when the Panic of 1819 hit. So this, again, a panic is another phrase for a depression or a, re a recession, right? Like a downturn in the economy during the 1800s. 
And when that hit in 1819, a lot of people looked to the institution that is the Bank of the United States and basically claimed that it was kind of being corrupt, that it was hurting the economy. Um, now, even though this view was, was still pretty prominent, it had actually been restored pretty well by a guy named Nicholas Biddle in 1823, because that's when he stepped in to be the president of the Bank of the United States. So things were on the up. I mean, people, some people still thought it was a bit suspicious, but things are going okay. Now, where Biddle maybe made a mistake is um, around the year 1832, uh, Biddle was trying to renew the contract of the Bank of the United States, kind of like a contract extension. Uh, he still had a couple years, but he wanted to make sure the bank was, in, was safe for the future. Now, when he chose to do this, it needed to go to the Senate or to the Congress for a vote. And that's when Jackson can kind of do his thing and slap his veto on the approval for the bank. And is what goes go down goes down in history as the bank war, basically. In that what Jackson did is he was up for re-election and he made his battle versus the bank the primary kind of uh, topic of the war, of the uh, sorry, election. The same way, of course, like COVID is right now, right? The economy. Uh, the Bank of the United States became kind of the name, number one target. And for Jackson and his supporters, what they argued is this is something that, you know, has like unchecked power. It can affect the economy. We need to get rid of it, right? It's not serving the common man. It's serving the rich and all that. So it's kind of like a lot of those old views of even someone like Jefferson way back in the day, but even taking up another level, another notch. And uh, again, that, that's going to be the major issue is the situation with the bank. So, you know, again, you have Jackson saying he's going to kill the bank, he's going to destroy it, it's a symbol of corruption. And, uh, you know, others, even a lot of congressmen saying, what are you talking about, right? Like, we need this to ensure, you know, stability in our economy and all this. So it's this kind of the battle of wills that's going on. All right, now, how does he actually kill the bank? And again, when we say kill the bank, right, we're, we're basically saying how he uh, um, basically ends its existence eventually. So the charter is never re-upped, right? So they're not able to extend because he vetoed that document that would have given it an extension. And does anybody know, right? Like, how does a bank work? What does it need to have at all times on hand? Think of, like, why people go to banks, of course. What do you think? Like, why would I go to the bank this afternoon? If I needed a... It's not a good thing to do, right? No one wants to take on more debt, but... A loan? Yeah, to get loans, right? And so banks need to have kind of cash on hand and things like that. So what happens basically is uh, uh, Jackson and his uh, advisors or his close, you know, his cabinet, he basically does what's called defunding the bank. He takes out the, uh, the government's money in the bank. So the idea being that if the bank has no cash on hand, right, and all those government resources are emptied, it can't function. It can't do its job. And then, you know, basically what slowly happens over time is... Um, you know, the bank, the bank's charter runs out and the bank just kind of, you know, doesn't exist anymore. So that in a nutshell, that's what happens. But there's a lot of, uh, different perspectives here. Again, a lot of people within the Senate and the Congress are really annoyed by this because they think the bank needs to exist and needs to give the kind of country credibility. And then a lot of people are also critical of what are called the pet banks. So part of doing this, what Jackson does is take out all the money, right? The millions of dollars that the U S has in this bank. And then he redistributes it to these small private banks in the, in the states in particular. And so people call these his, these his pet banks because they, told, they were critical of him by saying, well, all you're doing now is just choosing these smaller banks and we don't even know why you're choosing to put the money in there. How do we know they're not your friends? You're just trying, trying, not trying to benefit certain people. And uh, you know, his kind of 
you know, sort of defense of that was, well, I'm the president, and I'm, again, I got voted in democratically, so I can do this if I want to. And, and you know, that's why they were called as pet banks, because he took out the money and then put them in these more regional banks, these more local banks. Now, Biddle, not to be outdone, right, who's the president of the bank, kind of fights back, too. And, you know, for him, the only thing that could be done is if you're taking all the money away from the bank, guess what? I'm going to call in all my credit, uh, like my loans and all that. And so when the bank does this, right, you can imagine, imagine, you know, you just borrowed whatever money for a business or a house. And all of a sudden the bank calls you like, you know, a few months later saying, hey, remember that loan we gave you for the house or the car? We want it back. So this credit contraction really hurts the American economy. But Jackson is able to kind of put the blame on the, the national bank instead of on him. And he's able to kind of retain his popularity for the most part. But again, this is what we call the bank war. This kind of struggle between Biddle, right, the president of the bank, and uh, you know, President Andrew Jackson on what to do and how to get rid of the bank. The kind of crazy stuff. Now, during in this climate of all this kind of negativity, right, and all this stuff, this is where we see the rise of a new political party we call the Whigs. Uh, taken from a party that existed in England before then. But, uh, you know, what the Whigs have in common is kind of interesting. A lot of them are ex-federalists. A lot of them are ex-Democrats, too. But they're people who have been jaded by Jackson in some way. He's too powerful, right? We didn't like what he did to South Carolina. We didn't like the way he acted in the bank war. And he's hurting the nation's financial interest. So the Whigs are going to kind of get a lot of energy and a lot of uh, traction for their opposition to Jackson. It's kind of the good thing. Like Jackson is so crazy popular and so successful, but at the same time, he also gets a lot of people kind of amped up to, uh, how do we say, rival him, right? Or to kind of fight him on different issues. So this is where we get the term like King Andrew and that cartoon you saw. A lot of that was made by kind of some of the earliest Whigs. Uh, this is something else that also doesn't hurt, doesn't uh, help the economy during that time. So you have this crazy drama going on, right? Between the bank war, between Biddle and uh, President Jackson. Well, he issues a directive or an executive order we call the Species Circular. And what this basically does is require payments for certain debts in hard, uh, hard currency, meaning hard currency like uh, no paper money, right? So it had to be gold or silver. And this is just really hard to do. Not a whole lot of people have gold and silver laying around. So a lot of people believe what Jackson did with the bank, with this stuff, really hurt the economy, eventually caused this nasty pa panic of 1837 to set in. A lot of banks are going to fail. A lot of people are going to lose jobs. And, uh, you know, again, that's one of the kind of lasting things, uh, impactful that, uh, you know, Jackson had kind of a role in and stuff like that. It's also really sad what happens to Van Buren. Uh, and I'll go through this pretty quick. But for Van Buren, you know, he's been kind of groomed. He's been the mastermind behind the Democratic Party. And he's finally running for president in 1836. Well, there were some issues already kind of there. But, uh, you know, he wins pretty impressively. But, you know, as you can see what happened, I mean, he wins in 1836. And that same year he is sworn in in 1837, you have this ugly panic slash depression that takes place. And so he's going to be kind of a lame duck president. I mean, he, uh, you know, he's not as popular as uh, Jackson. Uh, and that panic, you know, really kind of sours everybody on the Democrats, sours everybody on Van Buren. So they don't like that. Uh, there's also a little bit to be said about Van Buren because he was so different from uh, Jackson. Like he had no military background. He was from New York, from a pretty wealthy family. Jackson was more kind of an up and comer, right? Humble beginnings. So, you know, it's kind of like the opposite. And he, was, he just didn't have that same kind of charisma, same personality uh, that Andrew Jackson had. Uh, on the part of William Henry Harrison here, uh, hopefully the name sounds a little bit familiar. 
But this is a gentleman who will win the presidency in 1840. And uh, William Henry Harrison is kind of interesting because uh, he's going to be the Whig candidate for president. So he's going to run against the Democrat, Van Buren, in 1840. And literally, like, what the Whigs are able to do is kind of try, they basically find a copycat of Andrew Jackson. And what I mean by a copycat is basically someone who had a very similar life. Um, Y'all remember Jackson, how did he get popular, right? What did he do back in the day? Anybody remember his job? Battle of New Orleans, all that? What was he? Anyone? Andrew Jackson, what was his, how did he get popular as a, or how did he become kind of a celebrity, right? What was his job initially, before he was even in politics? No one recalls? He was a military leader, right? He was kind of a general or a colonel and then general. Same thing for William Henry Harrison, a, a military leader from a pretty humble background. Uh, he also had a lot of success against fighting Native Americans and stuff like that. So literally, it's almost like, you know, the Whigs found their poor man's uh, Andrew Jackson, and they rode that all the way to success, all the way to the White House eventually. It's also a little bit sad. Anybody want to guess what happens to Harrison not too long after he gets voted in as president? He suddenly died. Very good. Yeah, I forget what he, he got stricken with pneumonia. But I want to say he wasn't even in the job for like, I don't know, a few weeks or something. It's pretty pretty bad, pretty sad. But uh, yeah, he, he falls ill and dies. And uh, his VP becomes president, a guy named John Tyler. Uh, so uh, kind of crazy situation. Feel a little bit bad for the Whigs. They finally get their guy in there just to get sick and die. Brutal. All right, guys, just a couple more. We're almost done. Uh, so the second party system, this is kind of when we see its sort of heyday or reemergence. Because remember, the Democrats have been so basically dominant ever since, you know, about eight, a little bit after 1800 or so, right, with the emergence of the Jeffersonians. And then, you know, all that consolidation, all that happened kind of in the early or 1820s, 1830s. So now we have a more of a balanced system, one that's kind of more even. We have the Democrats who kind of stand for individual or states' rights. And they want the government sort of hands off uh, the economy, the business realm, things like that. And a lot of the South and the West especially supported Democrats. And then the Whigs, a little bit more of that Federalist sentiment from back in the day, want a strong central government, right, that kind of has a key role in especially boosting the economy and not hurting it, things like that. So a lot of people from the North, Northeast, uh, a lot of especially the upper classes tended to agree with a lot of the Whig uh, policies and things like that. But again, finally, we have some balance here, right? Something that, you know, for better or worse, we also have today, right? Um, and then again, different times, you'll have one party dominant or another. The sad thing also for the Whigs is, like I said, their guy dies, and the Whigs are going to be replaced in about 10 years or a little bit more by, who do we have now, right? Not the Whigs, but the, who opposes the Democrats? You know, who's that other party? Red, the elephant is the mascot. Republicans. Yeah, Republicans. So, you know, the Whigs will kind of morph or, you know, kind of transform into the Republicans later because the slavery thing is a big key to that kind of development later on. I guess here's an example of kind of a visual sort of propaganda right from that time period. Uh, kind of funny to vote Whig, right? Whigs to the rescue. They couldn't possibly be worse. So, of course, commenting. Now, who do you think they're targeting here? Are they talking about Jackson or are they talking about Van Buren? During this time, vote Whig, Whigs to the rescue. Especially like the rescue part, right? What do they need rescuing from? What happened in 1837? 
the panic like yeah said. yeah the bad economy really good so yeah we'll save you from the bad economy we'll help you right the wigs are there to kind of fill the void sort of thing can you go back to the this one yeah right there right there no problem um... let me know when you're ready no problem All right, guys, and a lot of the issues back then, you know, dealing with the economy, dealing with... Oh, sorry, go ahead. You got it? Good. Okay, cool. All right, guys, yeah, this is the last one. So if you want to do like a little T-chart here, you can. You probably don't have to put every single one, but it might help. You know, a good question on a test or something would be, you know, all the following made up, whatever, the Democratic Party of the mid-1800s, except, or, or the Whig Party of the mid-1800s, except. So it'd be good to have this. You can shorten them up if you need to. But the same way today, right? Like we would do Democrats and Republicans and then, you know, some of the important issues and things like that, right, to each side. You know, like, for instance, if I was to have Democrats and Republicans here today and I put something like immigrant rights, right, or immigrant issues, which party do you think that's more important to today? Democrats or Republicans? Like, whether it's good or bad? Oh, yeah, like just, you know, uh, how do we say? Like, you know, like asylum, right? Or providing people like a path to citizenship and stuff like that. Sorry, I should have been more clear. Wouldn't that be the Democrats? Yeah, there you go. Stuff like that, right? If I say something like pro, pro-life, pro right? Kind of anti-abortion. Is that more Republican or Democrat today? Republican? Yeah, a little bit more conservative. Very good. So this is more a breakdown of the demographics, right? Uh, small farmers tend to be with the Democratic Party. Again, it's not 100%, right? There are some that blur the lines. Uh, more working class people, especially in the, uh, you know, some of the cities that are growing in population tend to be Democrats. Uh, entrepreneurs, so business kind of startups, things like that. Immigrants, uh, especially a lot of Irish that'll come in from places like New York and things like that. A lot of them will find a lot of traction within the Democratic Party. And then even when we see some like uh, religious divides, uh, as far as Catholic tending to lean Democrat and other groups uh, tending to lean in, in one way or the other. Again, for the Whigs, a lot of pro-business interests, especially in the Northeast. A lot of merchants, so uh, people who are involved in trade and things like that uh, with other nations. Uh, a lot of more commercial farmers, right? Like bigger scale farming, things like that. And then evangelical Protestants, you know, groups like Baptists, Methodists, tended to, be, tended to be Whigs. But again, there will be some blurring sometimes stuff of this stuff as well. But it's important to kind of identify those sort of differences, right, um, uh, during that time. And if nothing else, you know, you finally have good competition, right? Before it was all just dominated by the Democrats. Now you have a little bit more equity. Things are a little bit more fair. Give me one second, guys. Uh, we're going to run you through a couple of primary sources. I just wanted to...